Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have Corey Groh in the studio, and Corey wrote a really amazing oral history of Green River, which is also essentially an oral history of the birth of grunge. Green River obviously spawned both Mud Honey and Mother Love Bone, and then, of course, Pearl Jam. And you talk to everybody. We're not going to replicate the oral history format today, but we are going to play big chunks of Corey Gross interviews with Stone Gossard, Jeff Ament, and Mark Arm. And it's an overabundance. We're barely going to be able to fit it into the show. Maybe we'll put more into the podcast. But I just wanted to start by having Corey preface it all a little bit and just explain why Green River was important and maybe very briefly, like, sort of where they came from. Sure. First off, thanks for having me on here. And second, like, Green River was this band that they're very emblematic of grunge. They were the very first band to put out a record that people called grunge. They came out in 1985. The record was Come On Down. They formed in 1984. They were all just 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds. And they all had sort of diverse interests in music. They'd all kind of grown up together. Some of them had gone to high school together. Some of them just knew each other from seeing each other at shows. But they had these influences that ranged from Aerosmith to Black Flag. And basically, it's one of these things where they put together this fusion of hard rock and punk and metal and sort of just found their way into this sound. And that's the sound that basically laid the groundwork for grunge. They were one of the bands that was on the Deep Six compilation, which was sort of ground zero for grunge. They were alongside Soundgarden and Melvin's and uh, Skinyard, which had Jack and Dino on it, who went on to record all the great, you know, like the early Nirvana stuff. So they were very kind of instrumental in that. And obviously, as you said, they broke up later and they formed all these other influential bands. But it was just this sound of this heavy, bassy, riffy, heavy thing. You know what I mean? I know it's like a lot of heavy, but it was a unique sound for punk at the time. And it's one of these things that could only happen in Seattle because Seattle at the time was this city that was getting skipped over by a lot of different bands. Like when bands would tour there, it was a momentous occasion. Like if the Dead Kennedys would play there, DOA would play there because usually bands would go from San Francisco right up to Vancouver. So these bands like Green River and the other Deep Six bands all kind of had to form their own sound at the time. And this was like in the early 80s and it was hard to find find music. And so it laid the groundwork for what would become this fusion of rock and metal and everything like that and became grunge. And what I love about these interviews is you push these guys to kind of delineate exactly which kinds of hardcore and hard rock and metal form the basis for this, which I think is so important because that's essentially musicology. Like this is where it came from. But let's go right into it. Let's hear Corey Groh and Stone Gossard, now of Pearl Jam, then of Green River. It was cool. I really like Somebody, uh, this Aerosmith song, which is yeah, right. Kind of a bizarre pick, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the dynamic of punk rock versus hard rock is already being drawn. There was always being the early dynamic of those two polarities was being on display. Yeah. I guess that was something I was always curious about, too, about Green River. What did you guys consider yourselves? Were you hard rock or punk rock or what? Uh, you know, I think that at least in my mind, and I can't speak for anyone else, but I was just so excited about the mashup or the sort of the postmodern sort of like, you know, I think, again, I always use this as my example, but going in sixth and seventh grade at school, it's like you liked either rock or you liked disco and those two worlds didn't meet. And you definitely didn't like punk rock. And when I finally was starting to get more exposed to punk rock in kind of like eighth and ninth grade, and I was meeting people that loved hard rock and punk rock, I just thought that that was an amazing, you know. And even disco, I just thought, okay, that's what I like is this sort of the idea that everybody's just kind of jamming out to different things and really enjoying it. And I think Motorhead was probably the, that was sort of the bridge band where you could go see a punk show and then suddenly there was a band that was sort of somewhat considered hard rock or heavy metal 
but that punks could tell that there was something going on there that made sense. I think all of that kind of added up to me thinking this is an exciting time because the sort of barriers of what sort of normal is normal for a band were sort of breaking down. And there was a real do-it-yourself. You're not really a musician. Maybe you're more of an artist. You're kind of making stuff up as you go along. Get a band and don't let them tell you what to do. That part of punk rock was really attractive to me in terms of just like letting kind of noise be part of it and amateurism and almost, you know, musical finger painting. I just was really attracted to that. And I think all of us found that we had a an opportunity to be in this world because it was accepting of non-professionals <laughs> mm-hmm. because none of us were professionals and all of us were excited about art and music and that there was this world that said you don't really have to go to music school or you don't have to do anything other than get some friends and you do these two notes and they do a couple of notes and somebody has a vocal melody that might be just sing-songy or it might be like a nursery rhyme or that you can have this sort of simplicity or this sort of celebration of amateurism. Mm -hmm. What were your bands before Green River? Like, I think March of Crimes was one of your bands, something else. Were those punk bands or were those kind of more down the middle like what you're talking about? Well, March of Crimes was a full punk band. They sort of said that I was in the band for maybe about three rehearsals, so I never even played a show (laughs) with them. But John Evison, who I don't know if you know who John Evison is now, but he's a pretty celebrated author and great guy. You should look him up, but he was the singer for for March of Crimes. He liked me, and I was kind of writing faux kind of heavy metal riffs that he was excited about. I'm not sure the band, which included at the time Ben Shepard from Soundgarden, who was writing awesome songs back then, like fucking great. But it never really worked out, me playing them, because I don't think I could have played their stuff. I was just sort of like, I could come up with my own little riff and it might be cool, but Mm -hmm. so I never played a show with them. So really, Green River was the only real band I was in. So that was basically the first thing I did, aside from a few rehearsals and jam sessions. Gotcha. What were the Green Rivers like? How did you guys write the song? I think you were all rehearsing in your parents' attic or your parents' basement or something. Well, Green River was a band for at least a couple of shows before I joined the band. So they were rehearsing at some place. And then eventually we moved over to my parents' house and everyone would write a riff and you bring it in and you bang it out and start singing over the top of it. And it was pretty short and sweet process and there wasn't much to it. You know, we weren't too precious about it because we weren't that, you know, I I think we were like part of what we were doing was this sort of spontaneous sort of eruption of noise and energy. And if we drank enough beer and the crowd was right, we had these moments where suddenly we were like in the middle of a sort of ecstatic (laughs) punk sort of chaos celebration whatever, Bach and all. (laughs) And we just wanted more of that, you know. And we had seen bands like Tales of Terror and seen bands like bands that were touring and traveling and the bands like the U-Men were, you know, playing and Malfunction, uh, Ten Minute Warning and all these bands that were sort of doing sort of oddball mashing up of styles and we just wanted to be part of it or that's what I wanted. I don't know what anyone else wanted. Do you remember Green River's concerts or albums being better? I think there was some tracks where we kind of got it Right. But I I think the recording was, you know, I was way too cerebral in terms of recording. I think that the art of recording is really sort of uh, not thinking more than thinking. So 
I think that we probably succeeded more live than we did recording. I think that there was some people that were fans, I think, had transcendent moments of just like, wow, these guys are just like a ball of musical heaviness. And if you were in the right state of mind and you believed that you could kind of be transported by that as music does. So my gut would be that uh, we probably succeeded more on a live level than a recorded level. Do you have any favorite memories of playing concerts with the Green River? I think it's kind of maybe some of our kind of early shows playing at like the high, di- high Dive. I think it's the High Dive. There was two or three clubs, Squid Row, you know, maybe we, I think we played a couple at the Vogue. Just probably more like maybe down in Portland, a couple of shows where the pressure was off. We were kind of just in a small room. We were confident we'd go out there and we had just enough beer in our system that it all kind of worked. And I think the closer we got and more success that people were having and the more we were thinking, well, we should have success, I think the more, at least, you know, the anxieties of wanting to be good or good enough to warrant that sort of attention or, you know, sort of that sort of self-consciousness probably began to creep in a little bit, at least with me. And, um, you know, that's never good for performance. You have to kind of, I think, to be good, you kind of have to really believe and forget about the consequences of it all so i think early and uh drunkenly in small places (laughs) it's acclimation it's i think you can get acclimated to where it feels normal and then once it feels normal then you can kind of relax enough this again is just for me i don't know everyone else's different process but for me it's like if it feels normal then you can kind of relax and be yourself Mm -hmm. and let loose a little bit more and if it's like if you think about you're playing with you know led zeppelin or you know the clash or something like that where it's like you're putting all this sort of pressure on yourself to kind of be great then that usually doesn't bode well (laughs) right right do you have a favorite green river record uh i think dry as a bone i mean that makes the most sense to me in terms of that was when it was still the most fun And Rehab Doll had some good moments on it, and I think it was cool. down that road of sort of being kind of torn apart from where we're going to go or how we're going to do it or it just was maybe less fun at that point what is it about dry as a bone because i think there was like a year year and a half or something like that between that one and come on down was there just something after come on down that just made it a little more fun or you guys just hit your groove oh come on down was the first one yeah you know i just think bands in general when they start out and their success i think that cinderella sort of era of where you're just sort of like it's all great and it's like nobody's too worried about it because it's happening to everyone at the same time and it's fun and you're just kind of riding it and just like feels great and then as more people like you you start to think about more like well what are we supposed to be or what did they like about that or maybe i should do this or you know you just get more cerebral about it and i mean i think that's typical of most bands you know 
Yeah. Well, I guess what I was trying to say is why why was dry as a bone fun? Why do you think dry, that's what I was trying to ask? Like, what is it about dry as a bone? Because we were succeeding and we weren't spending a lot of time thinking about, and again, I'm speaking for myself, but probably as you make more records and you're like, well, maybe we could do this or maybe we could do that. And you start yeah. projecting your own desires onto it and your own image of what you think it should be as opposed to just sort of you're kind of in it and a part of it you're just happy to be there so you know i just think that there's a sort of a period early on where it's just less self-conscious gotcha gotcha do you have any particular memories of making that record with jack in the studio or anything like that anything stand out i think that we made it at triangle studios which i I don't even remember if that's actually where we made it or not i don't have a lot of memories we probably made that record i mean we probably were in the studio for three days you know what i mean like so those things are so they're like a blip and uh that is is it 30 years ago at this point (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i don't have any real you know super specific memory somebody might be able to remind me of something but i don't have anything Similarly, I was going to ask the same question about Rehab Doll, and the reason I bring that one up is because I know you guys were experimenting more. Like, I think Mark was under a piano singing through the strings and that sort of a thing. I don't know if you remember, like, experimenting with anything. Yeah, I mean, I think that we had a little bit more time in the studio, and we had a producer at that point that was, you know, maybe a little, had a little bit of ambition in terms of uh, trying different things. I think Jeff, you know, had heard some samples from people using clanging metal as a snare sample, and there was the beginning of that kind of era, and so there was just sort of this, we could do all that other stuff, why don't we just keep experimenting with anything we want, and and you kind of learn the limits of that, and kind of go, okay, that's why you don't necessarily do that, is because it's not all good, It's sometimes it's just not good. And then there's, you know, I think it was like, okay, this is our third time in the studio, what does the studio do? Jimi Hendrix did backwards guitar, so what could we do, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think there was just some of that in a very amateur kind of way that sort of maybe some of it is unrealized or distracting yeah or takes away from the whatever the song is i think that record came out after you guys broke up too do you remember listening to it or having thoughts about it uh then after green river broke up you know i was really glad that there was the song uh i think it's the song rehab doll is the song that a guy named paul soldier wrote the music to And he was, uh, he is one of my guitar heroes. And uh, he played in Tim and Warning, and he played in the Farts, and he was just smoothest, you know, badass guitar player. And I met him, and he wrote that song. He said, "You can have it." And I remember that uh, I, I played it for the fellas, and they all loved Paul Soldier, so they were psyched. So that was that's probably the thing I'm most sort of excited about that record is just knowing that one of his compositions was on it and uh, that he let me use it. I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool, yeah. I'm glad you told me that, because I was curious about the story behind that, because I know Mark, I think, wrote the lyrics for it, so that was, that was interesting. Like I said, you guys broke up before that record was even done. What do you remember about the breakup? You know, uh, what I remember is that I think, to be perfectly frank, I you know, I think Jeff and I were sort of ambitious in a way that, and I mean ambitious in the sense that we wanted to do a lot of different kinds of music and we wanted to probably do things that related more to sort of Aerosmith and uh, certain rock things that maybe the rest of Green River wasn't that excited about. So, you know, I don't know where, I don't really want to dwell on it at this point. I'm so happy that everyone in the band loves each other and has an opportunity to spend time together and make music together again. And so... Whatever the reasons were, they were based on generally bad intuition about what's important. 
And I think when you're in a band like Green River, you should celebrate what is Green River as opposed to just be thinking about what's outside of it. We could certainly have done things outside of it without having to have broken up, but uh, it's just the way things go, you know? Yeah, I mean, and obviously you all went on to great things, you know? Nobody nobody suffered after uh, that. You know, you certainly hear that with Mud Honey. I mean, when you listen to Mud Honey and the success that, that they had in terms of developing that style which was in there you know green river could have been but honey ask if we had listened more closely to the influences of steve turner and mark that you can hear the freedom and the power of what that band had they wrote hit you know they were onto something and they were onto something because they were keeping it simple and they were freeing themselves and they were like not cerebral about it so clearly they succeeded on a big level. And then I think, you know, Mother Love Bone, I think Andy's influence in that band is so big that I think that really was a, a great place for Jeff and I to end up and Bruce because he really had a vision and a positive, joyous connection with music that really helped us be less cerebral. I guess just to wrap things up, maybe just getting back to Green River, one thing that I was just curious about is just what, what do you remember about Seattle at the time, in the mid-'80s when you guys were, were doing all that? Because, you know, obviously there were a lot of bands. Here. There was a music scene, but just Seattle just in general. Like, what was that time like for you? Uh, you know, getting out of high school and sort of having more freedom and then being turned on to punk rock music by Steve Turner and Alex Shumway and loving heavy metal and going out and smoking cigarettes and drinking beer. And it was all pretty exciting. And the world seemed like suddenly after a lot of school, 12 years of school, that opportunities for having a, an adult life that wasn't just about getting a job and getting married and having kids seemed like a possibility and that somehow maybe art would save you know would save me and that you could get away in life by just creating stuff and being friends and sharing bands and that was just an exciting state of mind to experiment with and i think a lot of people felt that way it was like wow you don't have to go to new york to get into a, a cool scene and that seattle had a lot of and i think in retrospect people probably recognize it more now but it had a lot of artistic energy and a lot of people that were thinking similarly in terms of experimentation and collaboration and genre kind of bending sort of experiments Corey, maybe real quick, just explain who Mark Arm is and how he went on to Mud Honey and just a little bit about his style and before we play uh, that interview. Yeah, definitely. Mark Arm is, in my opinion, one of the coolest people to come out of the grunge scene. He's got this kind of acerbic wit, and he's probably the most punk rock member of Green River. And when Mud Honey came together and he became the front man of Mud Honey, he still had this sort of unpredictable quality to him where you just never know what's going to happen. And, you know, he's funny. The thing with Green River was he didn't play any instruments then. He was just the singer. So he would be this kind of wild, loose cannon and would do all sorts of crazy things on stage and stuff like that. In one of the other interviews that I did for this, Steve Turner told me that when they formed Mud Honey, Steve Turner's like, okay. Right. You're going to play the guitar because I need to give you some kind of an anchor. Right. So, yeah, Mark is just funny and, and smart and, and he's got one of the best voices, too. Yeah, he was like, I'm going to make him play guitar to try to make him stand still a little more. Also, you know, I like the way he played guitar, but that seems secondary <laughs> just to ground him. Got to rein him in. But let's get right to it. Here's Corey Grow and Mark Arm. Oh, uh, we were just a lot of times just kind of do weird things <laughs> that might like add to the shows. Like one time. And we opened for the Butthole Surfers, and my friend and I made a bunch of, like, green jello with spaghetti noodles and, you know, just flung that all over the place, which did not make the owner of the PA happy at all. <laughs> 
Now we did a similar thing with like a bunch of tape. Like I worked at Muzak and got spools of tape that had been damaged and threw that out. I think that was like maybe an opening for Red Cross. Uh, a lot of times I just kind of remember just being really drunk and a lot of times probably on MDA. <laughs> <laughs> Feeling good. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, it didn't necessarily, if I was like in a pissed off mood, it only amplified that emotion. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just like the love drug or anything like that. So... <laughs> Maybe not the smartest thing to do, but, you know, yeah. I was young and dumb and had felt like I had plenty of cells to fry. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the other guys were also telling me about some time that you put a fish down your pants. Yeah, <laughs> that happened. What kind of fish was it? Uh, I'm not sure, but it was sort of spinier than I imagined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Stone found this pair of silver lame pants that were just like super tight. It wasn't like bell bottoms or anything like just basically leggings and found them in a thrift store or something and <laughs> bequeathed them to me. I'm like, okay, I guess I have to wear this. And, you know, I just thought it would be like funny to have a stupid bulge like rock guys did and, you know, reveal a fish. <laughs> yeah, and the other story the other guys were telling me about is uh, power went out and you threw microphones in the audience or something like that. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I thought they'd cut our power for whatever reason, like, get off the stage kind of thing. Like, it was, I reacted poorly, for sure. <laughs> One thing I was wondering is, what music did you guys all agree on at the time? What were you all into? Uh, Tales of Terror. Anything that we covered, we pretty much were, like, in agreement on. You know, we all pretty much came up through hardcore, but we were listening to stuff, you know, before we got into punk rock. You know, I don't know if this is a thing that people do anymore, but, you know, like, when I think most of us got into punk rock, we just kind of got rid of our old records. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's fucking day one from this point on. You know, all that old shit, just bullshit. And after a while, it's like, you'd hear something and go like, Man, you know, that wasn't really that bad. You know, and quickly bought a lot of the records that I used to have before then <laughs> and sold, you know. Like what records? Like what would they have been? Oh, like Sweet Desolation Boulevard and like the first four Aerosmith records. And I tried getting back into Kiss, and it, it just didn't work for me after hardcore, like didn't quite have the energy. Sort of same with Ted Nugent, you know, it just sort of seemed weak in comparison. But I also discovered kind of old things that I wasn't familiar with because I was maybe just a little bit too young, like Alice Cooper and Black Sabbath. I mean, I definitely heard some of their songs, but I was, you know, just like the stuff that made it to Top 40 radio. And I think we were all pretty heavily into that stuff. And Cheap Trick... Yeah, one of these reciprocal recordings is uh, Somebody, Aerosmith Somebody. Oh, uh, you know, like everyone was like fans of the Stooges and Johnny Thunders and New York Dolls and things like that. Yeah. And some of us were fans of Venom and Discharge. <laughs> <laughs> Why were the Stooges such a big thing for you guys then? Because that was, you know, maybe, what, 10 years after they'd broken up, I think. Yeah, I don't know. For me, it was like just kind of getting into punk rock and reading about what came before. Mm-hmm. Like, Raw Power was a record that you could find because it was like a cutout for like four bucks or something like that. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't find the Electra records. They were like completely out of print. And I remember I was going to a small college in a tiny town in Oregon that had a pretty good records shop and found like the first two stooges that the owner had brought in on Canadian import, like one copy of each. So like one week went in and bought the first record and then like a couple weeks later when I had more money bought the second record and I was just like fucking blown away. 
Yeah. Normally, if you like hear something from the 60s, you're going to find something else from the 60s that kind of sounds similar. You can kind of find like a bunch of sub blue cheer bands like Frigid Pink or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just things that were going like kind of going heavier, but I could not find anything that sounded like the Stooges, especially Funhouse. Yeah. Like the first record, my frame of reference when I heard that was like, oh, like, well, it's sort of like The Doors and sort of like Jimi Hendrix, but it's really not like any of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That was like, that's as close to like anything else I could kind of peg that record to. And then Funhouse was just sort of like free jazz on side two. It was just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was, it was just like mind blowing. And it's a ferocious record. And I kept looking for like other 60s records that like people who might have, or early 70s who might have taken up the mantle. And it wasn't until like maybe 74 or something like that that there's rumblings of things. But I mean, I don't think I, you know, there weren't really records out of that stuff. Like a lot of those bands didn't do, you know, bands that were like influenced by that stuff, like the Saints and Radio Birdman and mm-hmm. Rocket from the Tombs. They didn't, or, or the Dam, they didn't release records till like 76 or 77, or right. the Ramones, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was, it seemed like there was this weird gap mm-hmm. when there really wasn't, but just like in terms of output, there was. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, and I figure too, just being in Seattle, obviously. Maybe things didn't filter as quickly out there as, you know, other places. Yeah, you know, maybe uh, then. I didn't know anybody that had Stooges records for a little (laughs) while, you know, except for maybe Rob Power. What do you remember about Seattle back then? What was it like back then? In the mid-80s? Yeah. I don't know. I remember just like kind of skateboarding around and taking buses. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was a very different vibe. It was still like, you know, a Boeing town, even though Microsoft was kind of happening in the suburbs. But And, you know, Starbucks existed, but it hadn't, like, infected the rest of the world yet. <laughs> it seems like Seattle really started changing in kind of the mid-late 90s as the tech sector kind of started taking off. Mm-hmm. And there, I remember, like, there'd just be these young, younger kids running around with, like, f- totally flush with cash. And it was just, like, so weird. <laughs> yeah. And then that whole thing burst. <laughs> and it seemed like, ah, that's, there was a, somewhat of a reckoning or something. Mm-hmm. And of course, a lot of those people crawled back out of their holes, and now it's that way again. Yeah. <laughs> Where did Green River kind of fit into the music scene there at the time? Obviously, I know there were all the Deep Six bands. Yeah, well, we were part of the local underground. And there were local undergrounds all around the U.S., and probably most of the Western world, and even some other odd places, too. But I think we were just sort of in like, you know, the kind of more of a fanzine world. You know, there wasn't even like like the bigger pop publications like yours or Spin or something wasn't really paying attention to that stuff mm-hmm. that much. Every once in a while there might be an article on like Husker Du or The Replacements or, you know, Nick Cave made the cover of Spin. I remember that that happened once and heard later that supposedly it was the lowest selling issue that they ever had, <laughs> you know, at that point or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, things were just like really kind of word of mouth. And some of us like work at the local college radio station and that was a way to gain access to, you know, to hear a bunch of records without just having to buy a whole bunch of stuff. Like I worked, did shifts there with Kim Thiel and uh, Bruce Fairweather and Charles Peterson and Bruce Pavitt and John Poneman and a bunch of other people you may or may not know. So yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, that was kind of it. Sure, sure. I good. mean, the, the local music scene was kind of tough for bands that played original music. Mm-hmm. At that time, you know, it was you were it, it was really hard to get like a weekend show unless like you were put on a bill with a touring act or something. Mm-hmm. But most of the shows happened for a long time at the Vogue only on like Tuesdays and Wednesday nights. 
so you know that only really appealed to people who really didn't give that much of a shit about work <laughs> right <laughs> it's like oh i can go to work the next day and be hung over it's not a problem right <laughs> did you consider yourselves hard rock or punk or what uh i don't know if we really i mean i i, I would have thought of myself as part of like the whole punk rock or kind of that kind of post-punk is obviously the wrong word in terms of genre because post-punk brings up like pil and gang of four and stuff like that right yeah. But the stuff that maybe post-hardcore were people who had, you know, which I think like kind of started with Black Flag slowing down, mm-hmm. you know, and, the, and I think the Butthole Surfers came out of that. King was a drummer in a hardcore band. Sonic Youth wasn't ever a hardcore band, but they were like, at least Thurston was really into hardcore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just kind of felt like we were a part of that thing with like the Butthole Surfers and Sonic Youth and Big Black and... The replacements who are, you know, a much straighter band, but it was all kind of part of the same thing. I can see that. I guess the reason I was curious, too, is I've always read that Steve quit because you guys were too metal or getting too metal or something like that. Yeah, well, you know, like kind of after, or kind of in the early days of like people kind of drifting away from hardcore, it kind of went in a couple different directions, and one of them was sort of like more of a speed metal route. Like the Accused went kind of more in that direction. And that first record, I don't know if you've listened to it, but... yeah. There are, I think, half, three of the, how many songs are on there? Like six or seven? There's a number of songs on there that have that kind of galloping Iron Maiden sort of rhythm. And Come On Down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like Ride of Your Life. And and Tunnel of Love was like the bane of Steve's existence because it just was so long and had so many different parts. (laughs) You know, and sometimes it would go three times and sometimes it would go four or whatever, you know, and he would just be like, he said he never knew how to play that song. (laughs) <laughs> Never knew how to play it all the way through. He, he wasn't really into that that much, and he wanted to go back to school or something, mm-hmm. which he did for a while, but he never graduated. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Corey Grow. We've been playing his interviews with the former members of Green River. We're going to play Corey's interview with Jeff Ament, currently of Pearl Jam, of course. Let's go right into it. I met Mark. I was DJing at the Metropolis, which was like the punk rock commune in town at that time and i met mark you know i was probably mixing up ssd control and flipper and black flag and then i was probably throwing in aerosmith and maybe kiss and i think he came up and said if i remember right i played sick as a dog off of rocks off aerosmith rocks and he said that's their best record but the best song is nobody's fault (laughs) and that was sort of the beginning of like our friendship the friendship was largely around just turning each other on to music kind of all the way through the band. Like I have three or four tapes still that he made for me that, you know, was like the scientists and stuff that he was getting into, you know, towards the end of Green River. And I, I'm sure I was making him, I know I was making him tapes that had like, I remember for sure a tape that I gave him that had Venom Warhead on it, which was for me like the pinnacle of Venom, <laughs> if, there, mm-hmm. if there could be a pinnacle of Venom. <laughs> so yeah, we agreed on all kinds of stuff. You know, I think the weirder, slowed down, my war period of black flag and i think tons of hardcore you know minor threat and a lot of the east coast stuff that was happening at that time ssd void Mm -hmm. did you guys consider yourselves hard rock or punk or or what i don't know if we were thinking about it that much i mean our scene was like the hardcore scene and at the same time i think the thing that we loved about a lot of the hardcore that was happening at that time and when you think about ssd records like all the big bands in ssd were like really different but they were all sort of lumped into being like hardcore you know you look at black flag and who's and sacrum trust and the minutemen i mean all those bands are dramatically different 
you know. And I think there was a part of us that related to, you know, whenever somebody got comfortable with what they thought hardcore was, it was cool to do something that was like, that sort of like nudged it a little bit. You know, I think that's probably why the band even lasted as long as it did. The metal that I was listening to at the time was Motorhead and Venom and Merciful Fate and stuff that was kind of sort of on the edge. And Stone was really into UFO and Iron Maiden. And um, I don't know if any of us really ever embraced those bands at that time, but he was writing a lot of the music. So we were sort of taking those riffs that he was bringing in and we were sort of deconstructing them and turning them into our own thing. And that was probably giving it a little bit more of a punk thing. So, but you know, a lot of it was just based on the limitations that we had. I don't think any of us were super great players at the time, but we all loved music and we were all, somebody asked me this a few months ago. They were like, what made you want to play with the people that you played with? And I always said it was, I, th- I think it was enthusiasm, you know, like mm-hmm. I wanted, I wanted to be around people that were enthusiastic about music and, and not just playing music, but, you know, listening to music. And and um, and I think that was sort of what that band was all about. I think we were all massive fans, and we were constantly turning each other on to music. And I think that probably the biggest break over the course of the band was when Steve Turner got really into, like, super poppy garage music. He, he was really into, like, the milkshakes, and he would bring music in, and I, I just didn't get that at all. <laughs> that felt sort of... I was into distortion and heavy and all that and he he sort of went the other way yeah but in terms of the over the course of the rest of the band i I never really felt uh, these big differences i I think sometimes that stuff gets played up a little bit and at the very end you know we we play a show with jane's addiction and stone and i love jane's addiction and bruce and mark hated jane's addiction and i think that was sort of that was probably the first really big difference, and it was the end. <laughs> well, I was, I was just going to say uh, that Jane's Addiction show is still one of my top ten shows that I've ever seen. So nothing changed, you know, mm-hmm. for me, like, you know, in terms of that. Like, it still holds up to me. Is you know, that, that period of Jane's Addiction was really super psychedelic and heavy and special and neat, super original. And, you know, I was inspired. Stone was, too. Yeah. What I was asking is just, what, what you know, when you were listening to these records again, what, what strikes you just kind of generally when you when you hear these, these albums? I think I think the enthusiasm. And, I you know, I, I think so much of the band's, probably until PJ20, I felt like I really wanted to just keep looking forward. and I wasn't that into doing the PJ20 thing because I felt like as soon as we started looking back, that opens up a whole other thing. And But the cool thing about listening to this stuff and we put out the Mother Love Bone box set, I think I just put that stuff in the rear view mirror and didn't think anything of it. And then over the course of time, I think in my mind, I sort of thought like, well, that stuff wasn't very good. That's why we went on to the next thing. And the further back that it goes, there's something in my brain that tells me it must be even worse. And um, I think the thing that struck me about this stuff was that I think the enthusiasm and the energy that we had sort of pushed us through some things that maybe we were, you know, we were sort of playing at the very edge of our abilities. And a lot of times it, it comes off great, you know, to me, like the energy feels great. And the things that might make them bad, like musicianship's not good or the tempo is going to be crappy or whatever, like for the most part, that stuff's pretty good. And even when it's not, it, it sort of feels sort of feels right you know i mean plenty of my favorite records have mistakes and tempo changes and you know the way that they made records in the 60s and 70s so i think i was pleasantly surprised by like for me it was better than my the 25 30 years of the memory dissipating or you know whatever you know the memory's not even based on listening to anything it's just based on like oh that's something we used to do and wasn't very good and i think it's much better than i remembered so 
Oh, that's good. That's a good feeling to come back to. Do you remember? Do you yeah, remember much yeah. about how the songs came together? Do you remember how you guys would write songs back then? Pretty typically, except for the rare case that maybe I might bring in some music, which only happened in a few occasions. Most of the time, at the beginning, it was Steve, and then it was Stone on these records. You know, we would show up, and he would usually have a riff, and we'd usually just jam on a riff, and then it just sort of ends up being like a you know the group sort of puts the song together, and um, everybody's sort of interpreting the riff. And um, it was pretty rare that somebody would say like, hey, I really hate that or I really don't like the way that you're playing that thing. We just kind of let everybody play. And there were times when we would say like, hey, what if you drop out here and then it'll just be bass and drums? Or what if I drop out here? What if the drums drop out? You know, I think we were sort of volleying uh, arrangement stuff around the room but it was a real band scenario in terms of like how those songs came together because it was just in a room and listening well as we could you know with the minimal gear that we had because mark was singing through like an old crappy bass amp that there's probably no top end to it so we were probably just getting little glimpses of what the vocal melody was and a lot of times you wouldn't really know what this song was like until you played a gig or got in the studio and you're actually like whoa Mm -hmm. cool you know what do you but, remember about Green River's gigs? Man, there wasn't a lot of them. I mean, Seattle was a hard place to play back then. And even when we did get shows, sometimes when we got bigger shows, Mark would often have something up his sleeve. Like, uh, I think there was a show with, it might have been Agent Orange, maybe. And I think he put a bunch of sardines in his underwear and then pulled the sardines out and threw them on the crowd. And I think some of them got in the PA and then that promoter said, you'll never play this town again. And similar thing happened. We opened up for PIL and they wouldn't let any of our, they didn't give us a guest list. And so we snuck in about 20 of our friends up the fire escape back. And then all of our friends started sneaking around and then a few of us got into PIL's dressing room. I think we sort of pillaged their dressing room. And at the end of the show, when I went to get paid, um, I think it was John Baptiste. I think it was the guy that owned Astor Park. I think he was a promoter. But he basically told me that we'd never play in that town ever again. And I think there was a period of time where there was six or nine months where there wasn't a lot of places to play. It was sort of before the Vogue started doing shows. And it was before the Ditto Tavern. I remember we were going to Vancouver. and We were going to Portland a ton. And we were playing Satyricon. And George, the guy that owned Satyricon, always treated us right. He'd pay us a couple hundred bucks and feed us and give us beer. And that really wasn't happening to us in Seattle. Like, you know, we're, you're lucky to make 50 bucks or 100 bucks until, like, the Ditto scene started to happen. And the, and the Ditto scene is, I always think of that era as, like, sort of the best time in Seattle because it was 100 to 200 people, depending on the show. And half the crowd was in bands and all those bands were playing there. It was sort of our, that, it felt like it was really kind of our scene. It wasn't like we were co-opting some promoter who was trying to make money off of us. So, you know, I think about that time fondly, you know, like it was, we were all 22 to 24 years old and 25 years old and having a blast, you know, drink a beer and play music and just getting back to Green River in general, do you have a favorite Green River record? I think Dry as a Bone is like sort of, you know, that, that sort of feels like the truest of all the records. And I think a lot of it is because we went into reciprocal with Jack and Dino, who we, pretty much all the records, we cut demos with him. And that studio sounded great, and Jack always did a really good job, and the stuff's dry. So it, it sort of stands the test of time a little bit better sometimes than the... You know, in the 80s at that time, like if you went into a little bit nicer studio, they all had lexicon reverbs and things that they were doing and how they recorded drums that sometimes that sound doesn't stand the test of time so much. And So, I mean, I think that the record, I think Rehab Doll came out maybe after you guys broke up or 
something like that. What do you remember yeah. about the breakup? How did what happened? I think everybody's probably got a little bit of sure, but but the Jane's Addiction thing was a huge part of it, and we didn't have a particularly good show. And I think on the way home, we listened to the show. The show wasn't that great. And I think it was classic of the way that we all sort of operated at that time. I think I don't know if it seemed like that big of a deal, you know, like even the way that friendships and relationships that you have at that time are pretty loosey, and they're you maybe don't handle the breakups the way that you should have. And I don't even know if we fully understood. We just it just felt like it was it was time to move on. And, and uh, Stone and I, I think, had talked a couple of times and. I remember I was back at work like two days after we got back home and Jonathan Palman came down because they had just rented a space above the coffee shop that I worked at. And he came down and said, hey, we found a van for you guys. So on this next record, you guys will build a tour because, you know, we're going to get you a van. And that was literally the first time anybody had ever offered to help us out (laughs) with anything. I mean, all the records before that, we paid for everything paid for the recording. In a case of Dry as a Bone, we paid for advertising, and we were technically the record label at that time. I mean, Bruce Pavage just did the work of putting records in a box and sending them to distributors or record stores. So to have somebody offer us something, and I remember having a talk with Stone, who's going like, man, maybe we should, shit, we got a van. This is awesome. You know, <laughs> never had a van. We always toured in Stone's Chevy station wagon. So um, my memory is that she was just ready to move on. So uh, we were sort of in limbo at that point like there was some talk about maybe we were going to move to LA or and a lot of it was just based on what we saw with Jane's Addiction and we had some friends down there and then Stone started doing some shows with Andy Andy Wood was doing solo shows at that time and Stone would go up and play guitar and they invited me down to a show and it was actually really amazing it was like full T-Rex super campy and when Stone played with them it kind of turned into something else you know it kind of uh, turned into a little bit more rock even kind of loving rock it's just that campy thing and like a drum machine and acoustic guitar and the way that Andy sang and I had been working with Andy at the Raison and, and I, lo- I loved Andy but I don't think I was sure uh, how much work it would be <laughs> mm-hmm. with Andy. but we gave it a go and we pretty much had interest from minute one like as soon as we made a demo and Mother Lebanon like it got interest so that's another story I'm getting into another yeah. story but that sort of covers the end a little yeah I guess at the end too I was just curious like what did you and Stone and, like, and Bruce what did you guys want different from Mark and Alex that you guys did because obviously you know you guys wanted something different that you broke up that's why I was curious yeah I don't know I don't know you know I think we probably wanted to be a little bit more pro maybe probably wanted to be and like I said I think that James Addiction show so I think something for me sort of broke you know because like, we were halfway through the show and I felt like I was having my mind blown I felt like it was the best thing I'd ever witnessed and to a guy in the band like I just felt like I kept going around to each person and going like, oh my god like they're incredible they're all so different but they're all really bringing a sound to what they were doing and then you know in the middle of that I just remember those guys saying like man this is terrible <laughs> I'm like, well, uh, so I think that was you know that's how I was feeling from my end I mean yeah. he could probably talk to any of the other four guys and they'd have a completely different yeah. <laughs> take on it but cool. what did you think yeah. of Mud Honey when you finally when you finally saw them after the breakup well the first time I saw them I was like you know I thought it was cool but I was sort of glad I, you know that it felt totally like it was the natural, most natural thing that Mark and Steve should do. And granted, like, we were barely in a band with Steve. I mean, we were in a band with Steve for like four months or something, you know. So I, I knew Steve as much from like skateboarding and stuff as I did being in a band with him. So I think there was a part of me that felt like I was happy that I, we were doing Mother Love Bone. That felt like it was a little bit more what we were doing. But as time went on with Mother Love Bone, I remember they'd put out a single and an EP and then they were putting a record out. And during that time, you know, we were like, 
signed to a major label and we were doing demos with all sorts of different producers and you know after two two and a half years of doing that stuff and then my parents go to Europe and they're like you know they're being a band and we're stuck in the major label zone that sucked like I was super jealous of them at that time I remember seeing them play show Motorsports Garage and 2,000 people there and they just got back from Europe and you could just tell that they were on fire and they were so much of a better band you know that year and a half in between when I saw them the first time in my mind I always knew that the way that you became a great band was to go out and play and the tour and we weren't doing that. We were I think we did we did about forty shows with that English band Dogs Demore and that was the gist of it. You know, we were you know Love was a band for three years and you know, we put out an E P while Andy was alive and the album didn't come out until right after Andy was gone. So yeah. um felt like Mud Honey got a lot more done than we did. And so from that standpoint I was uh I was jealous. And uh I know you guys obviously did the the Green River reunion in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. How was that? Yeah, how did that feel to play with everybody again? Three guitarists. It was awesome. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. Was, I think all of us like Bloister Colt, so I think you know we we sort of getting into that mode with Steve being in the band with Bruce, and but it, it was really fun to play those songs, and mostly we were just playing songs from the first two records. I think partly because Rehab all the songs were a little bit more um, involved. I just felt like it was going to be too much work, um, maybe to learn the songs. But now since those new songs have been like, if we ever played shows again, I would hope we would do. You know, at least two or three songs off of Rehab Dog is. I think Jack cleaning those songs up actually. I think it helps that those songs sort of feel like a natural part of what the band was doing at that time. One thing I remember, I remember we did a show. We did a show at the Sunset Tavern before that, and that was the first show that I had had a drink before the show in like maybe 25 years. <laughs> I had a couple shots of tequila, and it was. It felt like the Green River music was sort of conducive to that, uh, to maybe being a little buzzed. And it was fun. It was really fun. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Corey for sharing his really great and fascinating interviews with the members of Green River. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Corey, we just got to sit here mostly because he did all the work a year ago, yeah. three months ago. Anyway, this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, as I said, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Maybe leave us a nice review if you enjoy it. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.